When you ride across the wilds of Mongolia, don't forget to look up. I mean, the blue sky is famous amongst Mongolians. It's worshipped. It is the dominant feature when you're alone on the steppe. Coming up, a young equestrian tells us how she won the Mongol Derby, the world's loneliest horse race. Of course, in a global pandemic, being alone can be just what you need. For me, like I'm, I'm in the Alps. I'm surrounded by fresh air and loads of, of lovely space. It's been a wonderful place to be stranded. We'll check in with friends in Switzerland and Belgium to learn how their countries have been addressing the COVID outbreak. And when you can travel again, look at Reykjavik as a great home base for some stunning day trips. Take a trail that goes out onto the rocks where you're sort of perched above this gigantic waterfall, thundering into a canyon, and you just feel the mist pouring up into your face. Soaking up Iceland, saddling up in Mongolia, and sheltering in Brussels in the Alps. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A young contestant tells us how she entered a horse race across Mongolia at the last minute and won. And we'll look at the natural attractions you can explore on day trips from Iceland's capital, Reykjavik. That's in just a bit. But let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves by checking in with more of our friends in Europe on how they've weathered their own COVID lockdowns. Let's start with Stephen McPhillamy. He operates a B&B on Ireland's Dingle Peninsula, and just before the pandemic hit, Stephen bought an interest in the Hotel Oberland in Lauterbrunnen, Switzerland. That's where he's had to ride out the first few months of the global lockdown. Guten Tag, Rick. My goodness, my Irish friend is learning Switzerdeutsch. <laughs> yes, all is, all is good here in the Alps, where I've been for four months, now uh, in splendid isolation. My plan originally was just to come for February and March, but I've, I'm still here. All right, well, what is the vibe in Switzerland right now? There's a positive vibe the society is reopening. Tourism, travel has started again, just nowhere on the same level as it was before. We had two weekends where there was crazy crowds here, huge big crowds from all over Switzerland. Everybody who was here was from Switzerland or had to be from Switzerland. They weren't necessarily all Swiss because there's lots of international people living in Geneva and Zurich and whatnot, but everybody from within the border of Switzerland, we were overrun with crowds and then it just died and Monday to Friday, went back to being really, really quiet. Okay, well, this is sort of the very beginnings of the rekindling of tourism. I would imagine it'll be people traveling with, within their own countries first and then traveling within Europe and then uh, finally international travel and transatlantic travel. Yes, that's exactly what we're seeing. The borders here have just reopened, so we're expecting Germans and some Austrians and maybe some French to come now also. I don't anticipate huge numbers like that there would have been heretofore. Uh, one very noticeable thing in the valley, of course, that there's no American visitors. As you know, the valley also is very popular with uh, Chinese travelers, uh, Indians. Many people from uh, Dubai and uh, Saudi Arabia would come here, and they're not here this year, so there's a noticeable difference there. So the people getting the real cultural change would be the French-speaking Swiss people coming to the German-speaking part of Switzerland and not even leaving their own country. Exactly. 50% of our guests last week were French-speaking uh, Swiss, and it was the first time I've ever actually met those people. And I would say to them, are you French-Swiss? And they would say, no, no, we are Swiss-Roman. Uh, so I, I learned something new immediately. They, call, they identify as Swiss-Roman. <laughs> they were saying exactly what you just said. They said, it's like we are in a different country. It's very Germanic here. It's different to Geneva and Lausanne and Neuchâtel. Ah, so it was really cool. Yeah, and they were very excited to see a, a different part of their own country. So that was wonderful. 
Now, Stephen, you own a hotel in Ireland, in Dingle Peninsula, and now you own a hotel in Switzerland, in Lauterbrunnen Valley, two of my favorite places. As a businessman working in both these countries, how do you compare the support you're getting from the governments and, and how the two governments are dealing with this crisis? Well, the difference is very big. I'm still on Team Ireland, so I want to be positive about my own country, but there's not a lot of support coming heretofore. In Switzerland, for example, within two weeks of the crisis occurring, the Swiss Federal Council, which is the Swiss government, offered 10% of the previous year's turnover. And uh, so that's quite a considerable amount of money. And they offered us that as a loan, which was repayable over seven years, uh, 0% interest. So they're not looking to profit from it. And in Ireland, we really struggled to get some assistance um, we got 10,000 euros of an of a overdraft or a line of credit, but repayable at 7.5% interest. Mm. Now, in Switzerland, we got 300,000. So it's quite a big difference there. With no away. interest so, due at all. No interest at all. Now, of course, Switzerland may have much stronger and deeper reserves than Ireland, but they were able to uh, immediately come up with assistance, uh, very little bureaucracy or paperwork, and they immediately mm. got to help us. In Ireland, the experience was just simply much different. The government really weren't as proactive or as immediate as they were here in Switzerland. Hmm. Uh, the rules here in Switzerland are a lot less strict as well. There is a two-meter rule here, but I haven't seen anybody wear masks very much, which mm-hmm. is kind of shocking for me because I know in Ireland the whole narrative is people should be wearing masks. People definitely are observing social distance. One of my Swiss friends said to me that the two-meter rule has actually brought Swiss people closer together. So <laughs> that is so insightful to Swiss society. It's a more difficult yeah. thing it's a more difficult thing for Irish people or Italian people or Spanish people to keep two meters distance than it would be for the Swiss people or maybe the Scandinavians. Yes, and I can see back home people are w- wondering how is the Irish pub culture ever going to come back the way it was with social distancing whereas in Switzerland here for me, like I'm, I'm in the Alps. I'm surrounded by fresh air and loads of, of lovely space. And it's been a wonderful place to be stranded. I don't even want to complain about it because although I, I was stranded here for four months, it was the perfect place. I felt very safe. I might have felt different if I was in the middle of Zurich or something or in Geneva, but I felt very safe out here in the Alps. And it was lovely and peaceful and quiet. And of course, that's what people are coming here for anyway. And when you're walking on a ridge high above the village in Lauterbrunnen, you are not worrying about social distancing at all. You're just close to the sky and immersed in nature, and that's one of the beautiful things about Switzerland. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a new Swiss-German or Switzerdeutsch expression, das ist tip-top. Das ist tip-top. All right, Stephen McPhillamy, thanks so much. From Hotel Oberland in Lauterbrunnen, viel Glück. Danke vielmals. We're checking in with friends in Europe on Travel with Rick Steves. Hilbrun Weiss is on the line now from Belgium. Hilbrun teaches geopolitics at the European Communication School, and he also hosts custom tours of Brussels. Hello, Rick. Happy to be here. So tell us, what's life like uh, in Brussels, the big city of Belgium? On a daily scale, the things are slowly returning back to normal. You see that people are taking their habits back again from since our strictest period of uh, confinement. People were ready for it. The terraces were calling people and you see that people have gone back out and they're having beers, cups of coffees. The necessary precautions that we've been taught to take 
are being followed, eroding here and there. But uh, but it's, I'll be curious to see how as summer progresses and we enter into autumn, how we can start our academic year again and uh, and how that moves ahead. And uh, your family, you've got a, a young family. What's it like being under uh, quarantine or lockdown in Belgium? Well, the lockdown here was rather strict. Now, we are fortunate because we have a rather large place by comparison to live in. Uh, we have a great deal of sunshine, and uh, and I have my household around me. That's nice. I, I think it's very much the same for uh, every city, but I find that people who have the most difficulty tend to be the lower income, quite often immigrant communities who live in with a great deal of people in a small area who are accustomed to living more at the outdoors. And so you see this uh, tension with some people having difficulty with this lockdown and very beautiful things, for instance, where the bicycle and the pedestrian have taken more room on the road. And as cars have returned, the pedestrians and the cyclists have, have in fact kept a little bit of an extra space that they've taken. And so we'll see an evolution in the way that the city interacts with people and automobiles and uh, the lockdown's been difficult for everybody, but people are now seeing that perhaps some good and some, some bad elements may, may remain. I'm so thankful for my network of guides all over Europe. And when I'm thinking about political issues in the European Union, Hilburn, you're the man I want to talk to. You're right there in Brussels, the capital of the EU. And I'm curious about the European perspective and the Belgian perspective and your perspective on the pandemic, the crisis, and politics do you find that the pandemic is being politicized in Europe, in the EU? And do you find that different countries are enjoying the blessing of good governance more than others? Indeed, from the European perspective, there's a, um, there's a sinking feeling of, of self-seekingness that comes from the European level at the point where we have this system where the European Union cannot interfere in the health policy of each country. So what they've been able to do at the European level is introduce good information, is introduce a project to restructure and, and reinvigorate the economy post-crisis, to establish projects to give access to different medical equipment for those countries that are needy, but that's the limit of what they can do. They can't impose lockdowns over the entire block, etc. And in terms of the nations that then fall under the Treaty of the European Union, you'll find that in particular at the beginning of this process, the beginning of the crisis, politics were very much left aside. Once people began to take this seriously, said, look, we have to take this seriously, we'll take different directions in this. And then what replaces the, the competition between political parties becomes a little bit of this competition between countries. You'll see a very militaristic approach by some countries saying, look, we'll take this as a war. You'll see others saying, well, in fact, uh, we're going to rely on group immunity. We're going to try to find a way to, uh, um, to get this, through this together by limiting the cost it could have on our livelihood and our economy. And then also a sense of superiority that emerges between one country and the other. And then begin this game of national interest where, of course, one country can say we're going to block exports of medical equipment, but that would also include, for instance, certain medical equipment that was in transit. And this is where you find countries blaming one another for lack of solidarity or international interest, if you will. Hmm. But these things were very quickly, through diplomacy, resolved, and you'll find that um, politics, as usual, really began to reemerge after about two and a half months of strict confinement. Now, Hilburn, if you could choose where you would live based on which government is handling it the smartest, where might you like to call home? 
That's a very difficult question. Belgium, where I live, has been blamed for or has been identified as having a very high level of victims and deaths per million. So in a proportional fashion, I'm very happy to be here. I'm very interested to see that other countries have taken different measures. The Netherlands seem to be exemplary so far in what they're doing. One surprising country out of this is Slovakia that was able to introduce measures of facial masks almost immediately and people automatically tended towards a social distancing and found themselves with a very low number of victims. And one salutes those countries, but one cannot help to also note that those countries that were the worst hit, in particular Spain and Italy, didn't do it on purpose. And we're not speaking of the same crisis that we had in 2008 with the deaths that countries have emerged or had accumulated. This is really a situation where it's out of their hands. Where I'd like to be, I think I'm quite happy to be here. Hilburn Pais, thanks so much for checking in with us from Belgium. Fantastic, Rick. Best wishes. Thank you very much. Since we recorded our conversations, border restrictions in most of Europe have been relaxed after improvements in infection rates. And visitors from a few overseas countries, places like Canada and New Zealand, have been added to Europe's safe list. But new COVID infections have started to creep back up in some places, although not as dramatically as here in the United States. Up next, we get you ready for the wild beauty of Iceland. And later, we'll hear what it's like to win a horse race across Mongolia. It's Travel with Rick Steves. While many travelers take advantage of Iceland Air's stopover ticket on their way to Europe, others have discovered that Reykjavik, the capital city, is a great destination on its own. This former home of Vikings has grown into a friendly, modern, and walkable city, offering plenty of fun and lots to see and do. Yorick Harker leads private tours in Iceland, and Cameron Hewitt co-authors the new Rick Steves' Iceland Guidebook. They've joined us in our studio to share tips on making the most of your time in Iceland's capital city, and they offer up a few off-the-beaten-path tips, too. So, Cameron, I know you worked a lot in Reykjavik working on, on the guidebook to Iceland. Uh, of course, you, you go to Reykjavik when you go to Iceland. It's the capital city. It's the only real city in the country. Um, describe it. What would we find there that's appealing? Uh, well, first of all, Reykjavik, even though it's a world capital city, is a really small town. It's 125,000 people. It's about like Fargo, North Dakota. And it feels small. It feels like a small town that has kind of gotten an unusual level of fame, given the fact that there's not much population in Iceland. That makes it really livable. It makes it easy to get around. And it's sort of cozy and charming, but that also means that there's not a lot of big, fantastic attractions. The sightseeing is very good. The museums are very well presented, but there's not a lot of must-sees in Reykjavik itself. So if you have a day, what would you say the must-sees would be? You know, I wouldn't even spend a day there unless you've got quite a lot of time in Iceland. I think mm-hmm. Reykjavik's a great overnight stop. Mm-hmm. I would say that's a great place to spend the night. There's excellent restaurants, great restaurant mm-hmm. and nightlife scene. In the summer, it stays light until late into the evening, so you can wander around and get a feel for the city and then get out of town during the day. If you had one day there, I would say just explore the very walkable old center of town, the downtown. There's some interesting squares and landmarks and churches, good museums. But again, I think my main advice to someone going to Iceland for a short visit, Reykjavik's a wonderful place to spend the night, but there's not a lot to do there during the day compared to the natural wonders outside of the capital. Okay, and Yorick, I know you take tourists from Reykjavik into the countryside. Apart from being uh, an outdoorsman that's out overnight for days at a time in, in, the, in the lonely country, let's say you've got little time and lots of money and you just want experiences and your hotel is in Reykjavik. What are the top two or three excursions you would recommend for somebody who wants to get a taste of the nature of Iceland? You have to do the Golden Circle. I know it's a cliché. It is the most popular, 
but you can't go to Iceland and not do that route. Oh, so you're I leaving, agree completely. You're leaving town. Yeah. Very, very long established companies. It's all going to be taken care of. Even equipment in the winter, spikes for your feet and so on. You've got to do that one. Uh, if you want to go a little more adventurous, do the, let's do it in English, the long glacier, the Langjökull. Uh, they'll take you onto these uh, modified surface-to-air missile rocket launch machines, huge big uh, tires. If you've done like the polar bear visits in Churchill, those very high trucks, they'll take you onto the long glacier. You can go into an ice cave. You can either, depending again, budget, you can get there by helicopter, you can get there by car, you can get there by uh, snowmobile. And then one, it's a big one, it's a big journey, uh, maybe six hours, I think, maybe even eight-hour journey. Um, go to the uh, Glacial Lagoon. It's on the south coast. You get to go on a boat in this basically big natural lake that's getting bigger. It's being uh, formed by the carving of the ice. And uh, you get to go on these slightly old landing craft from the Second World War, sort of Normandy beach day type mm. things. Close to that, it's very, very famous now. It's getting a, a tourist name, the Diamond Beach. So it's where mm. these icebergs have come out from the lagoon. They wash up back onto the beach. So that's a bigger excursion, mm-hmm. but if you really want to push it, I would That's for available that. for purchase uh, from all Reykjavik. from Reykjavik. They'll yeah. all take you there and back in a day. Cameron Hewitt, if you're going to do the Golden Circle, and if somebody has just three nights in Iceland, uh, I would have a day in Reykjavik and a day for the Golden Circle. Sure, absolutely. What yeah. would you do? Lay out this general schedule. What are you going to see on that famous Golden Circle? There's three main stops that everyone makes. The first one is a place called Thingvetlir, which is a couple of things. It's a natural point where the two tectonic plates are separating so you can actually see a giant chasm where you can imagine that the North American plate is on one side and the European plate is on the other side. And so there's so that you and see then that fissure right there. The fissure and then that's also a very historic place because it's where the early clan gatherings were back in the 10th century where all the different disparate settlement age tribes would gather every so often for mm-hmm. their their parliament. That's the first stop. The second stop is a place called Geysir which is actually given its name to the geological formation that we all know as a geyser. That was the original place where that was identified and studied. And you can stand there for about 10 minutes and wait for this giant geyser to go off. So that's kind of a fun thing. And then just up the road from there is the third main stop on the Golden Circle called Guttelfoss, which is this spectacular waterfall, just this huge uh, thundering waterfall uh, where you can take a trail that goes out onto the rocks where you're sort of perched above this gigantic waterfall thundering into a canyon and you just feel the mist pouring up into your face and it's just a really beautiful place. So that's the basic route and then along the way there are multiple little side trips and restaurants and that sort of thing but that's sort of the main route. And a guided tour would make the the drive interesting. Yes. And there's plenty to talk about about the geothermal power industry and about natural flora and fauna and this sort of thing. It's a great little like Iceland in a nutshell because you see these three great sites and all along the way you get a sample of the rest of Icelandic nature. Cameron Hewitt is co-author of the Rick Steves Iceland Guidebook, and Yorick Harker offers private wilderness excursions into the backcountry of Iceland. They're telling us about options for day trips from the capital city of Reykjavik right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You know, Yorick, one of my favorite things about Iceland is the uh, waterfalls, and you've got the famous waterfall on the Golden Circle. You've got a couple of great waterfalls on the south coast. I have not been all the way around Iceland, but my hunch is that waterfall on the Golden Circle it's got to be as good as any waterfall experience in Iceland, uh, and it's so easy. Are there other waterfalls that are as impressive as the one on the Golden Circle? Yes, as impressive, because it is incredible, um, especially yeah. for uh, me as a European. Uh, my favorite is actually Skowafoss. Uh, Skowa means woodland. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's on the south coast. It's near a place called Vik. It's been in quite a few films uh, yeah. recently. Uh, not so high, but it's got a nice feel to it. You can get to the top of it, to the side. Mm-hmm. 
And then the most uh, powerful one in Europe is uh, the Datifoss up in the north. It's almost too powerful. You know, you feel the danger of it, but uh, not too far from there. It's almost like the northern golden circle. It's uh, the fall of the gods, uh, the Goldafoss, which I find very attractive, and especially uh, in the winter when it freezes. I like the, uh, the feel of that. A whole different feel in the winter, I would imagine. Oh, it's because the season used to be so short years back. I did the summer, and then as the season was getting bigger, Northern Lights, etc., they were pushing that market. I went and started doing winter tours. It's a different world. So it's, it's not just a way to stretch the season, because all over Europe they're stretching the season by saying, oh, you got to come in February, you know, and it's just, you go there and you go, why would you come in February? Yeah. But in, in the winter in Iceland, do you think it's actually a, can be a good move? It's hard, and always go Shorter with an open, days. Yes, go with an open mind. That's the difficulty that I find in tourism that people demand. Why aren't we seeing the Northern Lights? Why aren't we seeing whales? Why aren't we seeing puffins? You have to go with that open mind. It's nature. It can't be guaranteed. It's very shorter hours, especially in the north, but it's a different world. And if you're prepared, if you have the equipment, if you respect the nature, it's an amazing experience. Definitely. You know, I went all day out on a boat looking for whales, didn't see any. <laughs> I know people get up early, drive all over the place, don't see any northern lights. You can wait for the puffins and not That's see it. them. Or you can go in Reykjavik to this great cultural history nature center called The Pearl, mm-hmm. and you can see it all. Of course, it's all in a museum, but you see these incredible videos, you see these beautiful displays, and at least you've learned about those things, and then you can try to see them. But it's kind of cheating, but the Pearl, to me, is a great site for that purpose. Cameron, what's your take on the Pearl? I agree. The Pearl is, uh, you know, Reykjavik's doing this in a lot of ways. They realize people are in town for a short period. They want to give people a taste of Iceland, even if they're only in town for 24 hours and they can't actually get to these places. So the, they've come up with these wonderful attractions where they, they help give people that taste. The Pearl actually fills these old water storage tanks on the edge of Reykjavik with a viewpoint on the top where you got a beautiful view over the skyline of Reykjavik, sort of in the suburbs. And they've very recently turned it into state-of-the-art exhibits on the volcanic activity in Iceland. There's a beautiful planetarium show that kind of recreates the Aurora Borealis. Of course, if you're in Iceland in the summer, there is no chance of seeing the Northern Lights because it doesn't get dark. (laughs) So if you're there in the summer, the only way you can see the Aurora Borealis is through a false planetarium show. But they have a very nice one at the Pearl. They've even got a big artificial bird cliff based on the very famous Latrobiar bird cliff in the West Fjords where they've got this... It fills huh. the entire atrium of the building. I think it's three or four stories tall. And you can aim these electronic telescopes at different birds. And on the screen, it'll tell you about that kind of bird and when they visit Iceland and so forth. It almost seems to me as if it's a big uh, facility, ideal, made to order for school groups learning about the flora and the fauna and the geology. And school all groups and tourists who are in town for a few hours and want to feel like they've seen Iceland. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Yorick Harker and Cameron Hewitt. And we're talking about Reykjavik and all the wonders nearby. Our phone number is 877 and Deanna's calling in from Washington, D.C. Hey, Deanna, thanks for your call. Do you have a comment for Cameron or York or our listeners? Yes. I spent a long weekend in Reykjavik a few years ago with a friend of mine. We spent about four days, which is a good amount of time if you want to get to know the lovely city Reykjavik and also explore some areas around in the Golden Circle or south. I really enjoyed taking um, a city walk, and I think the name of it was City Walk Reykjavik, Um, It's run or organized by university students. Most of them are history graduate students, and the tours are free. So it's that model where you tip based on how much you enjoyed it. I thought it was very educational, informative, and it helped fight the jet lag uh, because we did it later that morning after we arrived um, in the Reykjavik. Mm. And it's quite an easy and pedestrian-friendly town, and with the local guide, there's lots of fun things you can learn as you wander around. 
Absolutely. Uh, also a very safe town. Um, it was just the, the two of us there. We were staying in an apartment uh, just outside of the downtown, and, you know, we felt very safe, and it was an easy walk to and from the downtown. We also rented a car, uh, which made it easy for doing some day trip excursions. A couple of things I would recommend if you're going out to the Golden Circle, um, one would be visiting the Secret Lagoon Hot Spring. Uh, it's a very different experience than the more touristic one outside of Reykjavik by the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more natural. There's a, there's even like real hot springs right there. So you can walk around and see them. You have to be careful. The water is quite hot in places. Mm-hmm. And then there's a great little place. It's a greenhouse. They grow tomatoes and basil and they also have a restaurant and they serve only tomato soup and pizza and they have a cute little gift shop. So I would definitely recommend taking a, uh, a day out, um, and then stopping by for lunch at, um, Friedheimer. Friedheimer. That's the, uh, tomato place. Yes, it Friedheimer. is. Yeah, I, Deanna, I remember that myself, and it really was a great chance to look in at the greenhouse and to remember, in Iceland, there's uh, actually quite a bit of production of, of vegetables and so on, but it's all in greenhouses, and this place just goes over the top with tomatoes. Thanks for your call, Deanna. Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, Cameron, Deanna was talking about the hot springs and the alternatives to the Blue Lagoon. Uh, it's funny, people just automatically think you got to spend $100 and go with all the tourists at the Blue Lagoon. It's quite an amazing accomplishment from a marketing point of view. I know you've had experiences in, in, in more humble community, local-style um, hot springs and pools and so on. What do you recommend? Uh, well, look, the Blue Lagoon is justifiably famous. It's right near the international airport. It's actually closer to the airport than Reykjavik itself is, so you can go on your way into or out of Reykjavik. And it's got a spectacular setting. It's situated in a natural lava rock landscape. But it's very expensive. It's about $100, and you really have to make reservations. Essentially, it's it's ob- obligatory to have reservations if you want to get in. The thing about the Blue Lagoon that I think a lot of casual visitors don't realize is it's the tip of, of the iceberg, so to speak, of a huge variety of geothermal water experiences all over Iceland. She mentioned the Secret Lagoon, which is one nice choice that's kind of near the Golden Circle. I just love the neighborhood swimming pools. Every little community in Iceland has a basic little swimming pool for 10 bucks. You can go in and splash around. In that. And it's interesting because you... From the outside, it looks like just a you know, municipal swimming pool back home. But the water is 100 degrees because it's all naturally heated, and it's very Icelandic. If you go to the Blue Lagoon, it's going to be 95 to 100% tourists. <laughs> if you go to one of these little neighborhood swimming pools, you're going to have 95 to 100% Icelanders. You might be the only nice. tourist. So true. In, so. in Ireland, you go to the pub, um, yeah, and that's where Icelanders meet. It's where they socialize. It's where they oh, talk really? business. So yeah, they in Ireland, the, you go to the pub, and if in, you like that in, social scene, you go to the pool. You, you go to the hot tubs, the pools. No, it's, it's an essential part of their, their culture. On my last visit to Reykjavik, I was in town for four days. I think I went to five different neighborhood geothermal swimming pools, and each one had its own personality, but there were several where I was yes. the only tourist there. And it was really fun, and they're a little less social, I would say, than the Irish. You're not going to necessarily oh, no, make friends. And, definitely. Yeah, they're a little more introverted, but you see them enjoying each other's company, and you see people, yes. this guy shows up, and clearly everyone knows this guy, and he plops down into the hot water next to everybody, and it's just a really fun yeah. social scene, and, and it's really... Unlike the Blue Lagoon, it's oh, really an Icelandic cultural you, experience. I heard Icelandic in the Blue Lagoon this year. You did? I did. Shocking. And I was like <laughs> aghast. But to, be, if to be that adventurous as a tourist, to just go to a small town public uh, pool. You don't have to be adventurous. It's very easy. Everyone in Iceland speaks English. Yeah. Um, yes. Just because there aren't a lot of tourists doesn't mean that they don't know what tourists are. Like, I right. always felt very welcome. Uh, the instructions are in English, or yes. at least in international yeah. signs with pictures, so I knew what I was supposed right. to do. Uh, the, it wasn't the that bad. The main thing with those pools, if we're going to encourage people to go to do the local thing, I've 
embrace, to respect the Icelandic culture because we're swamping them so much. And it's a different culture. When you go in a pool, you're expected to shower naked. Then you put on your costume, English word, the swimming costume, and then uh, enjoy the, the experience. Mm-hmm. You know, just um, it's because they don't chlorinate the baths. A lot of them are outdoor places. And a lot of it, because the way the industry is changing, a lot of backpackers now are going, they're camping. And then they're using these showers, these areas to, to wash. You know, they don't want the, the dirty toys so in their the local pool. So respect the, the local way, you know, because yeah. they are the minority in their own country. And I really feel for, the, for them in that regard. They speak amazing English. I feel for the older people who have to speak English in a restaurant, for example, instead of, say, Danish or Icelandic. Mm-hmm. So before you go in, remove your shoes. It's a very Scandinavian thing because very often you've got muddy, big boots put your towel to one side and enjoy the the local experience. And soak with the locals. Completely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying some tips on Reykjavik and Iceland with Jorik Harker and Cameron Hewitt. And Jorik and Cameron, let's just finish. I'd like to get back to Reykjavik for a moment and just top it off here with your favorite experience in Reykjavik that you think people would enjoy. I'll start with you, Jorik. What's one experience in Reykjavik? straight away comes right into my mind head to the city hall it's a small city but it's on a I think they call the pond Uh a small little lake in the center a very modern building only thing is you can't always guarantee it but I always take people there it's a large three-dimensional map and even if you're not going to do the country yeah we all have google maps and so on but there it is this big table in front of you and you'll see this this land that's been made, that's been shaped by glaciers, by the volcanoes, and it'll whet your appetite, I think, to want to visit more. I think they do it very well. The only thing is, it's, if they have a temporary exhibit, they will remove it. They, uh, they wheel it under a stage. But it's free of charge. Just go to the City Hall. It's even uh, open on a Sunday. I think um, it's later opening hours on a Sunday. So do check that, especially the winter. But center of town, and I think it just gives you that visual representation of what's out there. So and it's, like it's right on that, the pond, the lake Yeah, the it's town, just next to the Parliament Square. Cameron, your favorite moment that we shouldn't miss while we're in Reykjavik? You know, it's a big touristy landmark and everyone does it, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. The, the main Lutheran church that sort of crowns the town, this uh-huh. big pointy steeple, uh, the Hattogudemskirkja, you can take an elevator up to the very top and it's on a clear day. It's beautiful because you get a sense of how beautiful Reykjavik and how small it is. And then you're looking at some of the mountains off in the distance and it gives you a sense of Reykjavik as a whole and the surrounding Icelandic landscape. And the beautiful sculpture garden and museum just across the street from the big Lutheran cathedral, Einar Jonsson. Yeah, the Einar Jonsson is is a fun little hidden thing right across the street, as you said, from the Lutheran cathedral. Uh Uh, There's a museum of his works, but if you don't want to buy a ticket, you can go around through the gate behind. And this was an early 20th century Icelandic sculptor. Um, There's some very beautiful pieces in in the garden behind his own residence where you get a sense of, uh, of Icelandic art. And then my other one is just, let's not forget that Reykjavik is the hub for all of Iceland. It's got a great food and nightlife scene. And there's a couple of cool new food halls that I really enjoyed on recent visits. They actually happen to be on opposite ends of downtown. There's one at Hlemur and the other one's over at Grandi, which is uh, just beyond the port. But each of these is one big food hall that's got maybe 15 or 20 different restaurants, food stalls. And it's a variety of international food and different traditional Icelandic foods, mm-hmm. often done in kind of a modern way. And I find those to be a great place in an affordable way and also surrounded by mostly local mm-hmm. people no, it's good. to get a taste of local cuisine. And let's remember, Iceland is very international these days, so it's appropriate that it's a mix of Icelandic food and international food. Yeah. Nice. Jorik Harker, Cameron Hewitt, thanks so much for giving us some ideas on uh, stopping into Iceland for our next trip to Europe or maybe just on its own. 
Thank you. Thank you. For an even wilder adventure, we're looking at Mongolia from the back of a racehorse. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine surviving a thousand-kilometer horse race across the grueling landscape of Mongolia. Lara Pryor Palmer entered what's the longest and probably the most difficult horse race in the world at the age of 19. The Mongol Derby runs across the steppes of Mongolia, and it's based on the Genghis Khan 13th-century Pony Express-type messenger system. Lara decided to enter the race at the last minute. She, according to her book, was woefully underprepared and untrained for what she'd encounter. But despite all the cold and hunger and exhaustion, Lara became the first woman and the youngest person to win the Mongol Derby. She writes about it in her book. It's called Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race. Lara, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. You really went to the limit here. How'd you get this idea? I mean, what was your mindset when you decided to uh, embark on this? I was fresh out of school. I'd been out of school for nine months. And I was just full of energy. A few years later, I would go to a Bowen practitioner who, without knowing anything about me, would say, you are a pack of racehorses waiting for the gates to open. And I think it was in that spirit that I signed on for the Mongol Derby. I just wanted to do something that would explode me out of myself. And the race is really unlike anything in the world. I mean, I knew how to ride a bit. And my aunt Lucinda had competed professionally in eventing. But I was not prepared for endurance riding. So it was very much without thinking that I signed on. So how did you first learn about this race? Funny enough, on the internet, I think I'd heard about it a few years ago on Facebook, two people communicating about it. And then that year I was looking for volunteering opportunities on farms and things to do with animals and horses. And somehow, deep into the depths of Google, I was led to Hmm. the website of the Mongol Derby. And that's how I was introduced to it by other people. After I'd signed on, people said it really is quite life-changing whether you finish it or not. And uh, when when you think about riding a a relay of horses, a thousand kilometers, that's 600 miles across the steppes of Mongolia, can you describe the race? I mean, you're on a series of horses. Uh, You're pretty good on a horse, uh, but you're in this vast terrain. Basically, what was the race? Where did it go? What was the terrain like? Uh, Take us there just for a moment. Mm, Yes, so the race... The race is endurance for humans, not horses. So you are riding 25 different semi-wild horses across the green part of the steppe, or it's green in the summer, and not the Gobi Desert in the south or the frozen wastelands in the north or the mountains in the west. Sort of more steppe-like, by which I mean vast plains rising up to ridges, lots of grass and herbs growing and rivers running quite high with water in August. And you change horses three or four times a day and you're allowed to ride for 14 hours or almost 14 hours every day. You're being tracked by a GPS satellite system, which is quite strange contrast to the non-21st century sense you can sometimes have when you're on a horse in the middle of any nowhere, be that in the States or in Mongolia. So, Laura, just for a moment to think about the steppe, because it must be more vast than almost anything you can imagine if from a normal everyday life. I mean, was it pristine? Was there a tranquility? Was there a majesty to it? Was mm. was the sky huge? I mean, what did you feel like? Because <laughs> basically, you call it riding the world's loneliest horse race. You're basically alone with a horse in this, like, Mongolian steppe. 
Yeah, I mean, the blue sky is famous amongst Mongolians. It's worshipped and it is the dominant feature when you're alone on the steppe because most of the time on the steppe you can't see any roads, there's no fences, often there's no trees at all, no houses, nothing. It's really bare. And it's very high. It's as high as Denver. It's above 1,000 meters high. Okay, so, so you feel like you can't breathe and you might be on the moon. And each year, the, I understand, the course changes the exact route. So how did you know where to go and, and how did you navigate? Ah, oh, it's impossible. So you get told the route at the last minute, but there's no real map that they've made for you. They've sort of drawn wiggly lines on Google Maps and printed it out, and it's illegible because the line seems to hover in the sky above the map. But you have a GPS system, which is also very good at getting you lost because it wants you to go as the crow flies. So mm. it'll ask you to go over the mountains, which you don't want to do. You want your pony to conserve her energy and go around the mountains or around the bog or not through the river in case she can't swim. So often it was a, a case of getting lost and finding your way or asking a herder if you happened to pass a person, uh, which you might do every three or four hours or maybe once a day. And just reading the land, because the people there know it far more intimately than myself, the three-week visitor, did. They've made tracks with their horses and with their motorbike tires and trucks that they sometimes use to move their camps. So there are these so rough, was, rough tracks across the steppe then, huh? Yeah, but they themselves can be confusing. So you see all these tracks and then they peter out and then some diverge and you don't know which one to take. and. Right. If you veer off, then you might fall into a marmot hole, but you might be taking a shortcut. <laughs> so I never really got the hang of it myself. So this goes back to the, the days of Genghis Khan, and that was, what, 800 years ago. There's a series of horses. You change horses. In your book, you describe pretty vividly how they protect the horses. They even penalize riders who are too rough on their horses. Can you mm. talk a little bit about that? That's very rigorously done, the horse protection they measure the heart rates at every station, which is quite a good way of gauging whether you've overridden your horse, because usually a horse can recover back to a heart rate of 64 beats per minute within 10 minutes or so of being ridden for three or four hours. And you had 45 minutes for the horse to recover. And if that didn't happen, you'd be penalized and have to wait for two hours. And if anything more serious was taking place, you might be kicked out of the race. And then they would also test the horse's hydration levels by pinching the fur and seeing if it held its shape or not to make sure you'd taken the horse to water if it needed it. And also, of course, making sure the legs were okay and still running and not lame or anything. Mm. So uh, haste makes waste is a, probably a very applicable phrase for this. You don't want to overuse yeah, your horses. So these are semi-wild horses, you explained. And I would imagine each horse has has a different personality. Did you have a relationship with the horses? Were some more in sync with you than others? The phrase in sync feels really accurate. There are some horses where, you know, in a cliched way, one did feel in mystical communion with. I remember this particular horse who I named the lion afterwards because this horse was just so out of a horse's league. He galloped and galloped and galloped as though I was no weight, as though the mountain was no trouble, as though two hours in he wasn't tired and had a perfect heart rate when we got to the next hmm. station. I still wonder where he is. And other yeah. horses were equally endearing in their reluctance to go and their slowness and their testing of my stamina and my kindness, I guess. So it's a little bit luck of the draw. Really I mean, if, if you're competing on this thing and you get a series of bad horses, you could even be a, a very good horse person and fall behind. 
Absolutely, yeah. But mm. you do choose your own horse. So if you don't like mm. or you don't get on with whoever you're riding, cool. you can take him back. With you have a stable of horses to choose at each stop, huh? <laughs> not a stable. They're all out on the line. Uh, like well, sometimes they're not. So if you're in first position, you think you have best pick. But then yeah. suddenly... Uh, you're too early at the station and there's only three horses on the line. The rest have run away because Mongolia's full of microclimates and if a storm comes, often the herd will run a few wow. miles in one direction and the herder hasn't yet gone out to find them because it's 7am. So it was, the race, I like this aspect of it, is precarious. It's not the Olympic Games. Right. They're not yeah. trying to make the conditions perfect. We're riding across the Mongolian steppe right now with Lara Pryor-Palmer. She was born in London in 1994, and she's the first woman to ever win the Mongol Derby, famous for being the world's longest horse race. It's about 600 miles long. At just 19 years old, Mara was the youngest person to ever complete this race. Her book is called Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race. Laura, you won, but you were ill-equipped. I mean, you kind of did it on a, on a lark. How much did your passion for horses and your horse riding skills back in England help you out here? Because there's, there's no way to really train for this in Mongolia. How could you just drop right in and win? Mm, well, Rough Magic should really answer that question, the book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure it does, because it's not something I've ever been that interested in because I don't think I could work it out. I'm not really convinced by causes. I, it did happen, and I do believe it was meant to happen. And I can tell you things like I stopped going to the toilet in between stations, or I stopped eating at stations because it slowed me down, or I, learned how to keep the horses trotting in rhythm or cantering in rhythm that made them go mm. or conserve their energy and that was something I was taught by other riders on the race who were kind enough to sort huh. of share their endurance knowledge. I think there is a lot of passion involved, not before the race, I didn't think I would even finish it because yeah. some years half the competitors don't get to the end, but mm. because I really wanted to beat the person who was destined to win, her name was Devon Horn. And I just had this very strong sense that I wanted to stop her from <laughs> winning. So you, had, you were competitive. Uh, you really wanted to win this thing. Yeah. Also, she had said that she would win it to the yeah. ABC documentary makers. And I thought that was so immodest. And now I don't, I can see it's just a cultural difference. But at the time, I thought this was really outrageous and I couldn't believe it. And I, I had very little empathy for <laughs> where she might be coming from. Well, if somebody wants to go over there and give this a whirl, uh, you mentioned it cost, what, 12,000 pounds. So that's about, what, $15,000 to do it. What do you get mm. for that? The year I did it, it cost 7,000 pounds, and I could okay. definitely not afford that. Yeah. And I was so last minute, they gave me over a 50% discount. Oh, um, okay. So what do you get for your money? <laughs> well, each horse that is ridden requires a fee from the person who's lent it for the race, who's living on the step. So... Each year, well over a thousand horses are gathered in the Derby's name. Well, over you a thousand. How three. many how many racers are there in a Derby? Thirty to forty to fifty, but hmm. they each ride twenty five horses. So twenty five. Okay. That's I don't know. Seven hundred fifty horses, out. right there. Yeah. Basically, you get access to the horses, a support team. Yeah, there is a paramedic. It's never more than a three or five hour drive away. Well, that's nice you, to know. You fall off your horse, and within five hours, you'll get some medical help. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> and then how about um, <laughs> eating and sleeping? What was a typical day like? Ah, oh, wow. At the stations, the horse-changing stations, the modern Urtus, they would be expecting you, the people who'd lent horses for the race. They w would have some food ready, some mutton soup or some, one time, some really delicious vegetable sushi and maybe some dried yogurt or 
some airag, some fermented mare's milk, horse milk. Outside of the stations, you would not usually be fed, even though people were very hospitable. I think Mongolians rely on each other themselves when they're traveling. So they, not in the city, of course, but the Mongolians I met seemed very unsurprised by the act of generosity that is being a host. So I would ride up, you know, at 8.30 p.m., the cutoff time. I'd be in between stations, two hours away from one and two hours away from another. Right up to an unknown set of girls, which are yurts, which I'd pass every sort of half an hour. And I just, with my hopeless Mongolian, tried to explain that I really wanted a, a place to sleep. And it was so seamless. That's what my memory of it is. It was so seamless. No, no one questioned my presence. So you can just ride up to a little hamlet of yurts just out of the blue and say, uh, hello, um, I need to sleep. Do you have some dinner? <laughs> and, that, and they would welcome you and you'd be part of the family for the for that evening? In my experience, yeah. It's very much a part of the family, too. Mm. I remember, I don't know if it's because I was so lonely on the race, or that there, it's sort of a cultural difference to the more cold English family I was brought up in, but uh-huh. there really was a sense of warmth, like some of the most loving nights of my life, not in a romantic love, but in a mm-hmm. sort of tight-knit love in inside the circular girl, which is sort of no windows, you feel very cozy inside it. Where, with one or two of the families I met, I remember one in particular watching me go to sleep while they were watching television and the girl, and then I sort of opened my eyes and the, the elder woman of the family was laying another blanket on me and everyone had turned from the television to me and they all started giggling when they realized I had opened my eyes and could see them yeah. <laughs> watching me. And so they took just, you in. Laura Pryor-Palmer is the first woman and the youngest contestant to win the Mongol Derby. Her book about it is called Rough Magic. Because of the global pandemic, the adventurists have postponed this year's race until next summer when they plan to sponsor two different races across Mongolia. We have a link to their website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. What does it feel like to get off the horse after 14 hours on it? It must have been mm. a relief. Mm, depends if you fell off that day or not. <laughs> it depends how many bones you know. So I was very lucky that I fell off twice due to marmot hole somersaulting escapade moments. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get any injuries from that. So I would just have slow accumulating swollen ankles or very fatigued head. Your whole body is sort of saturated with a new kind of tiredness that you can't really quell with sleep. So you're just wondering how you're going to learn to inhabit this new body that's functioning at an extremely high physical level. And actually, I did adjust. By the seventh day, I didn't want to stop the race. I didn't really want to finish it. I wanted to carry on riding horses around the world forever. I wanted the postal system to still be in place. So there's a loneliness, and there's probably... It's not really boring, but you're out there for hours at a stretch. How did you occupy your mind? Did it feel boring? Did it feel like it dragged on? Or was it just a wonderland that you were privileged to experience alone? No, I don't think anything is ever a wonderland. And that's why I think travel can be confusing because the pictures, the photographs that you see on the internet make it look like a wonderland. And actually, wherever you go, you take your own mind and you sit there in your own mind. And it's exactly the same as, well, mine was, as it was when I was at home, full of discontentment, wishing reality were another way, wishing I wasn't in this horse race or that my horse was different or that I was in less pain or that I had someone to talk to. You know, you did a horse race, but that's not 
inappropriate for Mongolia because Mongolia is a culture that's very tied with its herding and its horses, I would imagine. Uh, what cultural insights did you take away? Mm. Horse racing is one of the three national sports there. Um, I don't... One particular thing, one morning when I was trying to tuck up a horse, I'd stayed in between horse stations and the horse ran away up the hill, spooked by me, by my act. And I thought, oh dear, what will I ride today? And I woke up this young boy in the tent who helped me by, of his own accord, going up to the horse whistling with a total umbrella of peace around him. And I just sort of saw that, okay, like many people in the UK, this person has grown up with horses he also seems to possess some kind of uh, very close communion or understanding of the quietness of the horse, or the tenderness of how the horse wants to be, the, the peace that the horse needs. And I wouldn't forget that moment. And I sometimes try to embody what he was doing there. I think it's maybe just my first experience of sort of, they call it horse whispering, that's not what it is, it's sort of listening mm. more to how a horse's body works. Laura Pryor Palmer. The book is Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race. Laura, thank you so much for uh, taking on the adventure and then reporting on it so vividly in your book. It's a fascinating read. As I was reading through the book, it's an amazing story of courage. Do you see it as something that was brave for a, a teenager from England to undertake? Mm, that's a lovely question because lots of people said to me that I was brave for doing the race is the obvious remark to make. And I always thought that was confusing because for me it's sort of quite easy to do something with a horse that seems dangerous uh, or like that race. It just didn't seem like a brave thing for me. Braver things for me have been learning to cry about two years ago or being emotionally honest to people I love and things like that. You know, that's the kind of thing I have mm. to challenge myself with. I think everyone has some kind of brave thing that they can do for themselves and everyone's is different but we we can all just inhabit that mode it's just like a heart-centered like courageous mode it doesn't have to happen in Mongolia when we're traveling it can happen every, any day of the week we don't need to outsource our bravery to the heroes and idols of our life I don't believe I think that we can just practice our own small braveries by working out the things we find difficult and huge and meaningful but they can happen on a small scale it's a beautiful life lesson to take home from the world's loneliest horse race. Laura, <laughs> thank you so much, and uh, best wishes in uh, embracing what you've learned from this experience. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tappen, Isaac kaplan Wilner, and Kazmura Hall. We get website support from Amara Kipnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to the BBC in London for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks for Scandinavia, Rick's new Iceland guidebook, and a cruise ship guide to the ports of Northern Europe. To learn more, shop online in the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.